Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with Libby Bacalar, the creator of the One Hot Mess blog. Libby's One Hot Mess originally began as a mommy blog, where she wrote about things like recipes, makeup, and the trials and tribulations of parenting. She says it transformed into what it is now, a social justice blog, after President Trump was elected, and especially after Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy was elected. She explains that, as a lawyer, she really had no choice but to speak truth to power, because if she were to stay quiet in the compassionless government we're currently living in, then she would be complicit in the repercussions. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Scott Liska, and James Humphreys. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep this podcast alive. My mission is to reach $4,000 a month. I've done the math, and with that amount, I'd be able to make this a full-time job. That amount includes my living expenses, as well as podcast production expenses. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. Patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to Libby Bacalar. The transformation of one hot mess from a mommy blog to a social justice blog comes from Libby's sense of a moral imperative. If she doesn't call these people out, then who will? If she's not critical of the powers that be and the injustices that they effectuate, then who will be? She believes that when push comes to shove, Alaskans will always band together for the greater good, for the values and the morals that make us who we are. Because, at the end of the day, she believes that we have a lot more common experiences than we think we do. So here she is, Libby Bacalar. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Hi, Libby. Hi, Cody. (laughs) Welcome to the show. How are things in your neck of the woods? Well, that's kind of a big question. My, um, My daughter's about to start middle school on Monday. My son's going into third grade. It's the last day of summer vacation. So we got outdoors and kind of been like running around in major parenting, late summer parenting mode. Um, So that's kind of been preoccupying my week this week. Um, You know, that and all the other things I pay attention to. But basically, my kids (laughs) have been taking up a lot of time. What other things do you pay attention to? Uh, well, the state of the state, naturally, the state of the nation. Um, and, you know, I make sure I weigh in daily on uh, current events. <laughs> so. So you're kind of in the thick of it down there in Juneau. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, uh, well, like in what respect? I mean, I guess the session's over. So that's good. Um, I guess what I mean by that is like you're amongst it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Although, I don't know. So much of government happens out of Anchorage now that it's like, doesn't really feel like you're really that amongst, I mean, I guess during the session for sure. Um, but I don't really feel like any closer to the source than people up in Anchorage or Fairbanks. I don't know. I think, I don't know, the state, it seems to me like the state is pretty keyed in right now to um, state government in a way they haven't been before. So that's a good thing. Yeah. I wonder if that's maybe a positive repercussion from all this. I think it is. You know, I think um, anything that engages people in democracy, (laughs) I think, is a good thing. Um, You know, I always say constitutional rights are not something that comes naturally. And if you if they're violated and you don't enforce them, it's as if they never existed at all. So it's not like a spectator sport democracy. And so it's good that more people are starting to recognize that. Mm -hmm. So you said that uh, democracy is not a spectator sport. Yeah, it's really not. What do you mean by that? Um, so, I mean, first of all, I think you have to pay attention to what's happening um, with your elected officials. You need to vote. Um, it's a it's a form of government that doesn't work unless there's participation and unless there's like real civic engagement, especially now when basically corporations are, you know, essentially own, own the government, you know, it's more important than ever for citizens to sort of speak out for their rights amidst Mm -hmm. all of these Mm -hmm. other interests that are represented. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you sit there passively and you don't engage with the process, you get the government you deserve. And I think that's a little bit of what happened here both in 2016 and in 2018 in the state. Do you think people are having a little bit of voters regret? I read that people are driving by the governor's mansion and flipping it off. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think people are having buyer's remorse for sure. I think he's in a situation where he's not making anybody happy. He's not delivering the big PFD and nor is he governing in a way that manifests any empathy or any concern really for just the average Alaskan. Um, And, you know, I don't think anyone's happy with him as a result. Uh, Plus he's broken the law a number of times. So, you know, he's he's not very good at his job. (laughs) Simple as that. Can you explain how he's broken the law? Well, I think you can read the ways in which he has there on the grounds for recall. So those are just, you know, a few examples. I don't know all the ways in which he has, but those are four concrete examples of laws he has broken since Mm -hmm. being in office or people acting on his behalf have broken. And obviously, you know, my firing and that of these API psychiatrists and um, was were unconstitutional, illegal firing. So, you know, he broke the law within three hours of taking office and he's continued to. And, you know, beyond that, his policies are kind of disastrous and. Uh, you know, people aren't happy about it. And the recall effort's real. And it's very, it's got a lot of momentum. And, uh, and he should be worried, because there's a there's teeth to that. I think I read earlier today that they're up to 28,000 signatures. Yeah, they're over that. And they have to build in a buffer to make sure that they have um, 
enough qualified signatures because what happens on these ballot measure situations is um, a certain number of the signers won't actually have been registered or their registration will have lapsed or something. Um, so you have to get more than the number required in order to build a buffer for ones that are disqualified. So I believe they're going to continue to collect signatures for this stage through uh, the end of the state fair, um, I think. And then uh, I believe they're going to file it sometime in September. I'm not really sure, but um, that's the first phase. And then it undergoes a legal review. And then um, there's a, you know, a decision made about whether it meets standards for recall. And then depending on what happens there, then there's the second signature gathering phase, which is, you know, 75,000 signatures before there can be a special recall election. Do you think that we'll get to 75,000 signatures? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not like directly involved in the recall campaign. I, I only know what I know about recall because that was a big part of my job for the mm. state. Um, you know, I did a lot, my whole, uh, you know, 60, some percentage of my job was ballot measure work. Um, so I would review ballot measures and referendums and recalls. Um, so I just know the legal side of it. I'm not like really, you know, directly involved in the campaign or anything, but I know how the recall process works very well. Let me know if you can, you can answer this, uh, for the listeners who might not know what is happening politically in Alaska right now. Well, I guess how I would describe what's going on here. It's sort of, uh, a little bit of a Koch brothers hunt is what I would call it. You have, um, a governor who was elected with a lot of kind of dark money from outside the state. He's running a playbook that's been tried in numerous states, uh, including Kansas and a number of other places. He has this woman, Donna Arduin, who's a professional state budget kind of decimator, I guess. I don't know. She's like, you know, sort of Ayn Randian, dystopian, like come to state after state and, you know, break yeah. <laughs> apart the budget, whatever. Like, basically, that's what's happening. It's like, not an Alaskan driven administration. It's an outside interests driven administration. Okay. And the people here, the citizens of Alaska aren't having it. And I think, you know, I don't know that the people who orchestrated this administration and are the architects of it really understand the tenacity of the citizens of this state, because I don't think we're drinking the Kool-Aid. That remains to be seen, I guess. I just, I don't, I don't think we're having it. How do you think that type of strategy by an elected official affects Alaskans on a social level? I think it makes them feel really demoralized. Uh, I think it makes them feel abused and bullied. Um, uncertain about the future, scared, um, wanting to leave, you know, and angry. And it's sad. You know, I think there's a lot of sadism behind these policies. And what's missing on the national level and what's missing on the state level is compassion. There's no compassion in government on at, at all. And the tone, the tone of the state and the tone of the country, which is the playbook for the tone of the state, because we elected a Trump disciple, is compassionless, sadistic, um, cruel government. And that's what's happening. And it's causing everyone to feel really unhappy because the tone that's being set is completely hostile. 
And I think the sooner we can just get out of it, the better. You know, something that I think pays to mention a little earlier than I have actually have it written down is something I read in a recent article you wrote in the Anchorage Daily News that I found interesting was that in your time as a state lawyer, you defended and won cases for five consecutive administrations of Alaskan Republicans, meaning that your job wasn't Republican this or Democrat that. It was nonpartisan. My job was nonpartisan, and I never had a problem, um, you know, taking positions for the state. Look, it's like I have a lot of professional integrity, um, and I was very senior at the Department of Law, and I loved my job. I was good at my job. I did my job for 12 years impeccably, and that's because I have a work ethic and I care about my work product and I care about my client and my client was the state, right? So our job as government lawyers is to advance the policy goals of any administration within the bounds of the Constitution. It's that last part, like I said in the op-ed, the within the bounds of the Constitution part that seems to be a problem for this administration. So, you know, being a lawyer for a client like that, it's just, I, I guess it's good they fired me is all I can say because I don't want to work for an administration that wants to break the law, period. So, you know, and I have not encountered that before. So you mentioned earlier, and you're alluding to it now, you were a lawyer at the Department of Law for 12 years until you and 1,199 other state employees were let go after Dunleavy took office, right? Well, we were asked to resign or be terminated. So we were told we had to submit our resignation letters, basically pledging allegiance to the Dunleavy administration, saying, we, you know, we, we support this agenda or else we were going to be fired. Um, so I did it. You know, I was like, okay, you know, and uh, I got fired anyway, along with another attorney named Ruth Botstein. Um, and we were the only two people in the whole civil division of the Department of Law to be let go. Uh, and it's because... Uh, it's, you know, it's because we're critical of the president on our own time. And, you know, it's like, that's why the ACLU <laughs> has my case, because it's uh, a huge First Amendment violation. And I think, you know, for too long, government employees have been muzzled um, when they're often in the best position to identify misconduct. And they're bullied and intimidated out of, you know, saying their piece, which is why I said, you know, I hope this administration is smarter than to retaliate against anybody, any state employee for signing this recall petition, for example. People mm -hmm. have a First Amendment right to do that, non-politically appointed state employees. Um, but it's just, it's gone on too long, frankly, you know, in, in general, that there is this idea that because if you work for the government, you somehow don't have free speech rights, when in fact, the government is the only entity that has to comply with the Constitution at all. So really, the government should be the safest place to work from a First Amendment standpoint. You know, if if I work for a private company, say like I work for Ford Motors or something, they don't like what I say. I don't. They can fire me. I don't. They don't have to comply with the Constitution. They're not a government actor. Mm -hmm. But yet, state employees are the most afraid to state their opinions, and that's not how it should be. And I'm determined to make sure that it's not that way. Um, so, you know, I guess that's my calling. Do you feel like um, maybe you were identified as a potential whistleblower and 
you know, they decided to just just get rid of you, you know, nip it in the bud. I have no idea. And, you know, it's like I don't even want to speculate about that because that's the ACLU's job to figure out on my behalf in the case. Um, But it's pretty clear to me that this is political retaliation. And, you know, what was in the complaint that's public for anyone to read is, you know, all of my personnel record, my evaluations, my, the fact that the state previously investigated my blog um, and found that it was consistent with the Executive Branch Ethics Act and the First Amendment, you know, and yet these people fired me anyway, you know, and I don't want to turn this whole interview into a rant about that, but yeah, that's what happened and it was illegal, right? So, um, and I just don't want it to happen to anybody else. I, I kind of want to get back to... You were investigated. Your blog, One Hot Mess, was investigated. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? So that was in the last administration. There is, um, I just don't even really want to get into all of that. But bottom line is someone who, I have a stalker, basically. And uh, she's really scary. And she generally was constantly, like, writing and complaining about me to anyone who would listen and she got her legislators and uh, the AG at the time to open an investigation into my blog. And they hired an outside attorney to do that. And the investigation came back that, you know, I wasn't doing this on state time. And this was part of my First Amendment right. But anyway, it's all in the um, complaint, basically, that was filed. But, um, you know, that was water under the bridge, or so I thought. But anyway, it's... Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I know I was poking the bear a little bit, but that doesn't make it right, you know, just because like, you know, you engage in conduct that is, um, I guess, controversial, that doesn't make it a constitutional, um, it doesn't make the government entitled to, uh, police your speech in that way. And so like, that's what the, that's what the ACLU case is about. It's a first amendment case. It's about the rights of state employees. And uh, I'm hoping it'll make some history. You know, I think that's a pretty big misconception with a lot of people is that they think that being critical of your government is akin to not being a patriot. Yeah, you know, and actually the exact opposite is true. Um, I think true patriotism is holding your government accountable, insisting that government actors comply with constitutional rights and norms, um, holding your elected officials accountable to the people they're supposed to represent. Um, You know, I think that's patriotism. It's participating in democracy, it's voting, it's dissent. Um, it's all the things that the whole country is supposed to be, is supposed to stand for. You know, we're not a monarchy, we're not mm. a dictatorship yet. <laughs> um, at least in theory, we're a democracy still. So we should act like it, you know? And it's like, if we're going to be in a democracy, we have to act like it. And part of acting like it is holding government accountable in this way and enforcing your constitutional rights and using whatever channels are available to you. Do you think that what's happening in Alaska can be seen as a kind of microcosm of what's happening in the nation at large? Yeah, 100%. I think that, um, 
And I think the architects of this administration think that. And, you know, I think there was an article in the Washington Post recently that said, you know, Alaska is the next great reckoning for this this model of government. Because um, this whole this whole way of government, this, you know, Donna Arduin austerity budget budgeting and um, this sort of like harsh, compassionless, you know, uh, sort of corporate, um, you know, campaign financed by huge corporations type of government is uh, definitely a model. It's a paint by numbers. And so Alaska is just another laboratory for this. And I think like a lot of people, the folks who designed this playbook don't understand that it's not going to play up here and that Alaska is different. And everyone always says that everybody thinks their state is the special snowflake. I know that, but you know, (laughs) things really are different up here. And I think we're about to show the country that I hope we are. It sounds like you have a lot of faith in Alaskans. Um, I do, actually. I really do. Um, Maybe that faith is misplaced. You know, I'll wait and see. But to me, the the verdict is already in on that. The fact that we collected, or not we, because I didn't do anything, but (laughs) the fact that the (laughs) recall campaign, say we, because I feel like I'm, you know, I say we because I feel aligned with the citizens, right? It's like against this administration, which is not serving a single citizen, including any of the people that voted for it. So that's why I say we. Um, Collected, you know, 28,000 signatures in two weeks, which is unheard of. And I just think that alone tells you all you need to know about how people think this is going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if it doesn't go any further, that's a historic recall attempt in and of itself. So it should send a message and it has sent a, sent a message because you could see that he was backpedaling, you know, like he was in the circus on a unicycle trying to undo <laughs> all of these um, things he had done. And it's like too little too late. You don't get to do this. And, um, you know, I said in my last blog post too, which I'm also, I think is going to be in the ADN next week too, actually. Um, it's sort of a domestic violence model of governing where you kind of like beat someone up and then you know, give them a little bit back and tell them they made you do it and, you know, tell them it's their fault. And, you know, it wasn't the intention that they be hurt, but it just had to happen to force a conversation. I mean, it's straight up abuser talk mm-hmm. and, you know, in a state with the rates of, you know, domestic violence we have, um, you know, the political and the personal are really intertwined. They really are. And I don't know if you read my last blog post, but I talk a lot about that in there. And, uh, you know, it's it's got to be called out because otherwise you just perpetuate like the cycle, you embolden kind of abusive behavior and compassionless government. And it's not a way anybody wants to live. It's not a way human beings want to live in a society, I don't think. And I think what you're seeing is human beings reacting to being told they're going to be living in a society they don't want to live in, and they're not having it. You know, I think that parallel between domestic violence and this way of governing, I think, is is pretty interesting, especially coming from a state that has such an issue with domestic violence. It's very familiar to us. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think we have one of the highest rates of DV and sexual assault in the 
country. I'm actually on a board of a of Aware, which is the um, sexual assault and rape crisis advocacy shelter here in Juneau. And so I've learned through my board service for them, you know, a lot about these issues and the culture that allows um, these attitudes and norms to flourish. But they're, like I said, I kind of explain it more articulately, articulately in the blog this week. But, you know, it's got that classic, sorry, I had to hurt you, but there is no other way to make you understand the scope of this problem. And, you know, here, let me give you some flowers. It's, it's sick. It's honestly sick. I don't think it's like Dunleavy gets up there. He's like, let me, let me use the language of a domestic abuser. It's not like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's subconscious. It's like permeated into the culture. So it's not like there's any awareness that that's what's being done. It's just part of the entire culture. And so it's like seeped. Everybody is seeped in it. Steeped in it, I should say. Seeped. Steeped. Everyone is steeped in this sort of culture of, I can call it patriarchy, whatever you want. It's, uh, But it's very abusive. And uh, it's not fun to be enduring that. Uh, and we need to be really careful when we elect people that we don't have people in positions of power that are complicit in that or that use that model of governing. Um, and, uh, you know, let's maybe one more reason we need more women in office. Um, because a lot of a lot of abusive men assume these positions of power and then, you know, act abusive towards the people that they're supposed to be representing. So do you see this way of, of governing a dying mindset? And these are just kind of like the last dying gasps of of that mode of thinking. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, but I'm not so sure. I don't really know. You know, I think I read something about how like specifically right-wing populism is um, on the rise across the globe. And some of that has to do with climate change and migration patterns and people just sort of like locking down their doors and becoming more nationalist and, you know, trying to protect their resources and whatnot. But I'd like to think, you know, there is I'd like to believe in like the milk of human kindness and that there's somebody there's some compassion left in in our government. I mean, maybe that's naive, but I'd like to think that we will have compassion again um, from leaders right on the national level, on the state level. Um, you know, I wouldn't have said of any of the prior governors that I worked for that they were lacking in compassion. You know, that's it's like a totally different sort of a thing. Now, um, you know, I don't think any of the previous governors that I worked for lacked compassion. This is like a different, this is next level, like sadism. It's scary. And so I just think it's, that's why you're getting a visceral reaction from the citizens over it. Did your work as a lawyer inform or influence what you wrote on your blog? Um... Well, like in a what blog post? Because there's like 7,000 of them. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's a pretty general question. Um, I guess what I mean by that is where do your ideas come from? Oh, man. Well, it depends on what I'm writing about, you know? I mean, I start in my blog more as like a parenting thing, and I would write about 
parenting travails and trials and tribulations of being a mom mostly. And then I like to like, I like fashion and makeup and silly stuff like that too. And so I would, you know, blog about silly fashions and food and, you know, I make these bingo cards, comics. It was just sort of like a general lifestyle thing. But yeah, like specifically as Trump started to kind of rise to ascendancy in, you know, to the presidency, I was like, this guy is unfucking believable And so like, I just started writing about him because I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And so then it sort of took more of, I guess you could say a political turn. Um, And yeah, in that aspect, I think my work as a lawyer informs my thinking because, you know, I know how the constitution interacts with statutes, interacts with regulations, the three branches of government, you know, I've been a government lawyer my whole career. So, you know, a really good sense of all of all of that and so mm-hmm. i can come at some of these issues from that standpoint and also just being being a lawyer teaches you how to look for relevant information quickly and how to kind of issue spot what the real real problems are in a situation i guess um and i guess some of my ideas like when i comment on different social justice issues i think yeah i think my training does come into play probably. Um, but no, I mean, it's not like I don't, I've always liked to write, you know, that's a big part of my job. Um, but I also just like it in general and I always have. So it's more just kind of a informal or a formalized journal of some kind, I guess. Do you think that your blog, is it any different now than when you started? Um, yeah, it's like more serious. It's more responding to current events. I'm using it more as an advocacy platform than I ever used to. Um, it was just more like a fun, silly, you know, satirical thing before that didn't really have any purpose. But now there's a little more purpose behind it, I think, you know, writing about these issues that I really care about, watching what's happening to our country and to our state, and trying to leverage the tools that I have um, and the the privileges that I have to fix some of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, like I had this like amazing opportunity to go down to DC last October and meet with Lisa Murkowski on the Kavanaugh vote. And I like sat three feet away from her in a room and told her why with a whole group of other women, 20 other women or so. And I told her personally why I thought she should vote no on him. And I was thinking after that, like that was an amazing experience and an amazing privilege to be able to, to do that. And the only reason I was able to do that at all was because of my blog and, um, and another attorney who read my blog, you know, was going to go and just one thing led to the other and we got to go down there. But it was like, from my blog that I got that to have that experience and it was really meaningful. So my blog has led to a lot of things that I didn't think would happen as a result of its uh, popularity, I guess. I think that in the last however many years, like pretty recent blogs have kind of blown up in Alaska and people more and more often will seek out, um, the voice of someone like yourself 
for their perspective on what's happening rather than the news. Yeah, I mean, I think the news is just much more constrained. There's sort of a more, it's a more um, formal, you know, they actually have to comply with like journalistic standards. Like I'm not a journalist, like I don't pretend to be a journalist. Um, you know, and then there's some people who do more journalistic blogging, like Suzanne Downing and Jeff Lanfield. And like, they're more sort of on that line between like reporting and, you know, op-ed and whatever. It's They're doing a different thing. Each of them are doing different things from each other. And for me, <clears throat> my thing is like much more hobby. Like it's a total hobby for me, a hundred percent. You know, I've never ever had a single advertisement. I've never sponsored a post. I've never made a single cent off of my blog. Um, and I like it that way because it's just a hobby and that's what I want it to be. I mean, I'm happy that people like it. I love doing it. <laughs> I love the dividends that it's paid in relationships I've, you know, developed as a result of it, friendships and things I've learned and uh, people I've met, you know, it's like really opened up a lot of worlds for me. Um, but it's for fun, you know, it's not my job. It's, um, it's, it's not anything more than a hobby, but it's turned out to be um, really useful in the particular era that we're in for, I guess, articulating some of the things people are feeling. Um, you know, even when I would write about parenting, I would try to articulate the things that parents were feeling in ways that I like to make my readers feel um, understood. And I think we all have more in common than we realize. And we all struggle with more things quietly than we realize. And I'm not afraid to be really open and public about any of my struggles. And so um, I think it helps people feel less lonely to, you know, like, like, like my tagline, my blog says, like, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll, you'll feel better about yourself or something <laughs> like that. And that's kind of my goal. It's to like, put something out into the world that helps people feel understood for a minute, a day. Um, helps people make them laugh, makes them think, and it's just like value added, right, in their day. Mm -hmm. That's why I do it. It's like I want like something to be, I want to put something out in the world that's value added to someone's day, period. And I like that. So that's that's why I do it. It's not for any other reason than to try to um, engage with people, make people feel good, and bring light to issues that I think are really critical um, to pay attention to, especially right now. Like, I don't want to be writing about this stuff. Like, if this stuff weren't happening, like, I would be still writing about, like, toys and makeup and, like, all the other silly shit that I used to write about. <laughs> like, when this is all over, I'm going to go back to that. Like, <laughs> the only reason I write, I'm writing about this stuff now is because I have to. I mean, and I think that's the thing that, like is a little bit wonky about me. Um, like, I don't actually feel like I have a choice. You feel like a, a moral imperative? Yeah, I do. Like, people are like, oh, you're, like, that's ballsy to, like, sue the governor. I'm like, of course I'm going to sue the governor. Like, I was, I'm a constitutional lawyer who was unconstitutionally fired. If I don't call these people out, no one will. You know, so I don't even feel like I had a choice. And I don't feel like I have a choice other than to call the stuff that I'm seeing happening for the bullshit that it is. And it is bullshit. 
and someone needs to say it and I'm happy to be that person. I don't have a problem with that because I'm not like afraid of these people. Like they don't really have any leverage over me. So I might as well just use my platform to <laughs> put out into the world what everyone's thinking anyway. Mm-hmm. And, or a lot of people are, but they're too afraid to say it. I'm not afraid to say it. Why do you think people are afraid to say it? Well, I mean, for one thing, it's like there are serious consequences, like AKA losing your job, um, burning bridges, alienating people. Um, you know, it's, it can be incendiary. And the truth and is hard to hear sometimes. Um, and I like to think that I have some fidelity to like the truth, whatever that means, or at least that the stuff I write about is well thought out and well argued or like at least, you know, thoughtful mm-hmm. um, or thought provoking. So, yeah, I mean, I think people are afraid because they don't want you know, they don't want retaliation, certainly from their employers. They don't want to alienate friends and family. It's not comfortable, right? It's like none of what's happening right now is comfortable and nobody feels good about it. Um, it's not fun to think about. It's not fun to talk about. It's scary, but it needs to be talked about in order to get through it. Because if you don't talk about it, that's a, that's like being complicit in it. And it's, I think, not giving it the, not naming what's happening for what it is, uh, is also equally dangerous. And now I'm in a position to do that and talk about that. And that's fine. You know, had I not been fired, I wouldn't be talking about this. So, you know, now I have an opportunity to really express myself. Does that give you kind of a freeing feeling? Definitely. You know, at this point I am, I feel like I'm doing more, uh, outside this administration than I ever could have done working in it. Um, you know, and so they didn't want me there and, you know, now I'm freed up to like basically, you know, go to war. I kind of, I mean, it's not even war. It's more just like, I see how bad things are and Mm -hmm. it breaks my heart. And if I were still working there, I would have to just have my head down and I couldn't say a word. And I never did say a word about any state issues when I was working for the state, ever. There's not a single thing you will find on my blog about the state prior to this firing. Not a one. So I never mentioned a word about an elected official or the state. You don't do that when you're their lawyers, right? Now, like, these guys are completely off the rails. And someone needs to say something about it. And... I am here to say something about it because it's ridiculous. I wrote this down, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it safe to say you went from kind of being a mommy blogger to being an activist? Yeah, kind of. And it was a kind of an organic evolution. It was not some intentional, like, I sat down and was like, I'm going to switch gears here. It was more just a slow evolution. Like, and it was mostly around the Trump stuff. Like, I could not believe that this guy was, like, getting as far as he was getting. I just, like, couldn't believe it. And I grew up in New York City, so I'm familiar with him from forever. And I'm just like, wow, okay. And I just couldn't stop talking about how ridiculous it was. And so then that, I guess, is where the tur- that turning point happened. Um. And 
it turned into activism because I think, again, I was saying things that people could relate to, just as I had when I was doing more mommy blogging. The other thing is, like, my kids are older now. Like, I don't want to put their business on the internet, you know, without their permission, you know. So it's different when I'm, like, have babies and I'm, or, you know, little toddlers and stuff, and I'm talking about the travails of toddlerhood. It's like a whole other ball of wax now with, like, you know, middle schoolers and stuff like that. Like, I wouldn't really talk too much about them without their permission at this point anyway. So some of that's just, like, developmental stuff. But, you know, at the time, like, early parenthood, um, talking about just the difficulties of that, it's a similar model now that I'm working with, talking about the difficulties of enduring this time that we're in that I don't think anybody likes. I think everyone's just tired of it, right? It's like, even the people that like, like these guys are like, this is like, I'm tired of hearing about this. I'm tired of thinking about this. Like, I'm tired of the entire vibe of it. Um, and uh, I think it just helps to hear somebody like, validate that feeling of like, yeah, this is all really fucked up. And we just need to say it's fucked up and work to unfuck ourselves, <laughs> basically, you know, and hopefully, like, we'll get through it. Can you point to a specifically impactful blog entry that maybe you use as a measure for your potential reach and influence? Well, if you're talking about the ones that get like got the are you talking about like numbers, like hits and stuff? Or do you mean like ones that I like? There's so many. I mean, I I've. I think I maybe have like 3,000 blog entries or something like that. Um, I don't really know. It's a lot. And I guess to clarify, what I mean by that is hits, reactions, feedback. You know, it has the the biggest bang for the buck. Well, the, the most popular post I ever wrote in terms of hits was this um, – Frederick Douglass fake Twitter account. It was the day that um, Trump said something about Frederick Douglass was getting a lot more attention now and everyone loves him. And like, you know, obviously no clue who Frederick Douglass is, no clue he's not even alive anymore. And I just mm -hmm. wrote this like this series of like 10 fake tweets from Frederick Douglass, like tweeting at Trump from beyond the grave. <laughs> and for some reason, I don't know why, like that one went crazy. That one got like 3 million reads and um, it was nuts. And then there've been a few others, but it, it's, you can't like create content like that. It just has to be organic. Like it's, uh, I mean, if you could create that every time everybody would, but you know, I think the ones that, kind of get the biggest reactions are timely, you know, something um, really wacky happens and, you know, you get, you come up with a particularly funny take on it and, you know, people are like, I can't believe this crazy thing just happened. Read this funny take on it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Very time and place. It's time and place. Yeah, it is. And it's like, what's your take going to be on it? I, I think I had a, um, during Obama's visit to Alaska, I had like a really good run of posts that week about that visit that were people really liked. Um, so a lot of it's like timely tied into like current events. Um, some of the, you know, parenting rants have been pretty popular. Um, stories I've told about, like I did one about a friend of mine who um, recently found her birth mother. That was really popular. It's just like really depends. I mean, 
I never know what's going to really resonate. It really is always, it's weird. It's like when I'm writing and I have something that I know is, is going to blow up. Like sometimes I'll be writing something and I'm like, oh, this is like, this has legs. Like this one's going to blow up. Mm -hmm. Um, but most of the time I just write, write it without thinking about that or that, that thought doesn't occur to me. Um, I have a good sense of like which ones will get probably more reads than others, but I also try not to really even look at that so much anymore. I used to be more like obsessed with like clicks and stuff. And I just, um, like Landfield and I talked about that, like how easy that is to get like roped into that, um, kind of metric of like whatever. So I am, I kind of stopped looking at that as much because I've also stopped doing like long form blog posts every single day because it's just too much. Um, now I do like more little like tweets and, you know, funny Facebook things and just shorter form kind of quippy whatever's like, I'm just like the long form blog posts are taken more out of me than they used to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, you know, kind of scaled that back to just a couple of times a week. What does your writing process look like? Do you, is it all digital or do you write on a piece of paper? Um, it is all digital. I actually write a lot of them right on my phone. (laughs) I like basically text them into my phone or dictate them. Um, so it's very digital. It's not, I don't use any like pen or paper or anything. Do you do this in the car or walking down the street? Um, well, certainly not while I'm driving, but yeah, yeah. Walking down the street, um, uh, it's a passenger in a car, <laughs> um, you know, uh, like at night while I'm, um, watching Netflix or something, you know, it's sort of like my relaxation in a way. Um, so it's like that winding down with like your phone feeling and I'll just kind of scroll around and be like, Oh, that's hilarious. I want to write a blog post about this. And then I'll just start like riffing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of my process. It's like, I'll see something. I'll be like, Oh my God, Trump wants to buy Greenland. I have to write a blog post about that. (laughs) I'll come up with like some, I haven't done one yet on that, but it's like, I'll come up with some little hook and I'll be like, Oh, this is the hook around which I want to like go off on this topic. And that's all it is. It's just going off. It's like super unedited. Like I'm not making draft after draft or like really polishing anything super extensively. A lot of it is just like, wordplay and like riffing and trying to like make myself laugh at my own stuff. I mean, I sit there and it's like, I get high on my own supply, dude. I'm not going (laughs) to lie to you. I really do. Like I'll just come up with some zinger and be like, Oh, it's so funny. I'm the funniest person ever. Blah, blah, blah. So I just, you know, I laugh at my own shit and I, I entertain myself. Right. It's like, I'll like come up with jokes about this or that and just, um, you know, sit there and entertain myself. That's kind of my writing process. And how many drafts do you usually have? Or is it just right off the bat? I usually have like one draft. I sort of like spit it all out. And then I go back and read it a couple times and polish it up a little bit. But it's pretty raw. Like it's not really polished. Um, it could be a lot better. Like all of it could be like way better edited and like much more tight. And some of some of the pieces like have have had a lot more editing than others. The last two pieces on there are highly edited. Um, 
the others, like it depends on what I'm writing about and how much time I have and like what mindset I'm in. Um, but mostly like most of them are very raw and unedited. Have you ever reevaluated or changed some of your perspectives or opinions based on responses or feedback? Yeah, totally. Actually. Um, I really, um, it's like well, I had one interesting experience where I was sort of like wrote this jokey post about a stripper pole that was for sale on Juno, like buy, sell, trade. And like all these women in like the stripper community got like super offended by it. And I was like, really? Like, okay. And so I ended up kind of like, because when anyone ever gets like really offended, like I don't get defensive about it. I want to like learn from that experience. I'm not like, how dare this person be offended by what I said? Or like, I'm not going to like honor your being offended by it. Like, I'm actually curious to learn about it. And so like, I ended up like becoming friends with like a couple like strippers and like, I don't know, it was like really kind of cool. Like, and then I like interviewed mm -hmm. one of them for my blog. So I was really interested in her like work. And like, I ended up just like learning a lot about a new trade actually from um, versus like stereotypes that I had had. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I would say definitely like uh, I'll have experiences where I'll write about something. Of, I try not to do this, but like sometimes I'll like just go off on something from a place of ignorance that gets pointed out to me. And I always appreciate that because I am a knowledge seeker and a perspective seeker. And I appreciate that kind of feedback and those perspectives. Um, and I like to learn about that stuff. So uh, that was a cool experience. What specifically did you learn about the reality of being a stripper? Just like, you know, there's a whole art to it. And, um, you know, not everybody's like, a tr like traumatized or something. People choose that path. It's very empowering for a lot of women. Um, and it's like really artistic and, um, you know, specifically the, a bunch of these folks were in like burlesque and that has like a really rich history. And like, so it's really an art form, I guess. And, um, in a way that a lot of people don't like totally appreciate necessarily. And it's, uh, I guess, I, I don't know. It just, it, it changed kind of my perspective on it. And I also felt like I was being just kind of, you know, a little bit of a dick, right? Like sometimes like, you know, there's a fine line between funny and mean. Right. And so, I guess this post was taken as a little bit mean or something, which I, I try not to be mean ever. Um, of course, I'm super mean to like <laughs> our asshole elected officials. That's a different story. But like, I don't like to be, I don't like to traffic in like mean girl bullshit. Like, I don't like to do that. I don't like to be petty. You know, when did you realize that you were saying things that resonated with people? Um, pretty early on in the blog, I would say, because I would just get a lot of feedback right away that was like, oh my God, your blog is great. Or like, I really relate to this or da, da, da. And, um, you know, pretty early on in it, like K2 did like a whole feature on it. So I kind of knew I had something going that, um, people were connecting with. Right. And that made me feel really good because, I'm a people person and I like human connection. Um, and this was like a way to really experience a lot of that. And yeah, I think I, early on in the blog is the shorter answer to your question. 
um, because I just started immediately getting a lot of positive feedback about it and, uh, you know, friends telling their friends, oh, you got to read this blog, da, 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 you know. You know, now it's kind of grown and I still love doing it. And now I feel like it's kind of critical that I use that platform for uh, effectuating some changes around here. You feel more of a responsibility now. Yeah, for sure. Like, I feel like I have, um, I'm much more, I wouldn't say careful about what I say, because that's not true. I'm not careful at all about what I say, but I'm um, <laughs> more like deliberative about what I decide to like rant about, I guess. I mean, I I just, I recognize that um, you have a platform, you have a responsibility, right? And like, so an example, here's an example, right? Like if I see somebody intimating like physical violence of any kind, like anywhere in my feeds, I like hide that comment or delete that comment or report them or ban them or whatever. Cause I don't want there to be that type of space. Mm -hmm. I don't want my space to be polluted with that. Um, and I think anyone with any kind of platform really needs to keep that stuff off of it. Um, uh, like I'm trying to think of another example, but like, I'm not doing a good job articulating this exactly, but it's sort of like, I don't want to like spread misinformation. So I try to make sure that, cause that's an especially dangerous thing to do right now. So mm -hmm. I try to make sure that things I say, even when I'm making fun of them are factually accurate to the extent I'm, you know, citing anything or talking about a factual piece of news or something. I don't want to spread misinformation. Um, so I try not to do that, uh, that kind of thing. Earlier on, when you kind of first started the blog, was there a a response that kind of like uh, made you keep going? You know, like, oh, people are reading this. It's resonating with people. I just had so much to say. Like at first, I realized I had like a lot of pent up thoughts and stories and things that I didn't realize like I wanted to talk about and write about. And it all sort of just like blurped out kind of like all at once. Mm -hmm. So I had this like fire hose couple of years of the blog um, where I just like did like four or five posts a day and like had all this shit to write about. And um, I wasn't, I almost wasn't really paying attention to like if it was resonating exactly. I just, it felt good to write and it felt like therapy and it felt good to put it out in the world. And the fact that anyone was reading it and like sharing it or getting something out of it, like that just made, was like bonus to me at that mm -hmm. point. Um, so. You mentioned before that some of your, your blog posts and some of the things that you've said, maybe on social media, uh, I'm guessing, have alienated friends and family. I mean, I think, you know, I've had in instances where, like, people will, I can't even think of the specific examples, but I try not to, like, I certainly try not to use anyone's name without permission. Um, I've gotten into trouble using someone's picture once without permission, so I'm trying to be careful about that. Um, I, mm, I've stepped in hot water a few times with, like, family members on a few little things that I felt like, oh, I'm just telling this jokey story and my dad gets all offended, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like, you know, I wouldn't say alienated, but you know, I mean, I think 
certainly, you know, this, the stuff with work has been hard on me and, um, you know, I miss my colleagues and it's hard being separated from them. And there's kind of this rift between us now as a result. That makes me sad because I'm on the outside, they're on the inside and we were a family and that got kind of blown up. So that's been really hard, frankly. Um, probably the hardest thing about this experience actually. Um, so, cause when you work for people with, with people and for people for that amount of time, and then someone throws a grenade in that, um, it's really destabilizing. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's been a struggle, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's like not for everyone. Like it's like licorice or cilantro, my blog, like either you love it or you hate it. Like there's really not like any in between. <laughs> No one's ever like, meh, like licorice is okay or like cilantro is okay. Like people are just like, I hate it or I like it. <laughs> are we talking about black licorice here? Yeah, black licorice. <laughs> I don't know. And like the Grateful Dead, like either you love them or you hate them. It's just like, there's just, my blog is one of those things. It's just like people that like it, like it a lot. People that hate it can't stand it. And that's fine. So I was reading through your blog the other day and in one of your most recent blog entries, you wrote that someone you love sent you a quote that really resonated with you. Do you mind if I read that quote and then you can tell me what it meant to you? Yeah, sure. So the quote is, the woman you are becoming will cost you people, relationships, spaces, and material things. Choose her over everything. So I like that quote because it made me feel like I, it validated my purpose in what I'm doing right now, specifically what I'm doing with speaking out against this administration, what I'm doing with speaking out against the Trump administration, what I'm doing to assist the recall effort, what I'm doing to use my platform to advocate for social justice stuff. I mean, that's like my primary drive right now, that and like providing for my family. And so I think that that quote made me feel like it's okay for there to be casualties of that mission. And there are going to be casualties. There's going to be people that I'll never work for or be able to work for. There's people that are never going to, you know, speak to me again, probably. Um, there's people that, you know, are just going to be like, oh, she said that thing and I don't want anything to do with her because of that or whatever it happens to be. I I liked it because it, made me feel like I have like an inner drive and I should trust my inner drive mm -hmm. and not um, let my goals and my values and the way I express my values to achieve my goals, not let those things be clouded by, oh, but I might not get this thing or I might not get this job or I might not have money for this or I might you know, have a problem here. Like I might not be able to go there. Like those kinds of like externalities. I liked how that quote sort of subjugated those externalities for and, and kind of prioritized like your own self-actualization. You know, when I read that post, um, something that came to mind was that I could see reading that as a person if, say, it was more applicable to me, say, if I was a woman, and I read that, it would resonate with me. 
and it would probably speak to me on a more personal level. Does that enter the process of writing a blog? Like when you like this is going to connect with somebody and mean something really impactful to them. Yeah, I mean, I think like when I read something that actually seems kind of like deep and motivational to me, I assume it's going to feel that way to someone else. Mm-hmm. It will mm-hmm. because again, like I said, I think we're all a lot more alike than we realize uh, in terms of our insecurities, our struggles. Like everyone wants to feel loved. Everyone wants to feel safe. Everyone wants to feel known and seen. And those are all things that um, I think writing can achieve um, in the right time and the right place. And that's sort of when my blog is at its best is when it does that. Makes us all feel a little closer together. Kind of, yeah. You said something earlier that was, uh, I'm pretty sure it was, we have a lot more in common than we do different. We have a lot more common experiences than we think we do. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, parenting, physiologically, health, you know, mental health. I mean, it's easy now to see, like, to feel so divided. Um, as a country, because again, the tone is so hostile and so divisive. And as a state too, I mean, I think honestly, it feels less hostile and feels less divisive to me here right now, actually. It feels more like, oh, Alaskans are really united against this administration, actually. Not like, oh, there's like this group of like, you know, MAGAs that loves him. I mean, maybe there is, I guess there is, but it's like, you know, he's not even making them happy exactly as far as I understand. It just feels it feels like not as divisive here as it does on a national level. I don't know why that is. Um, I think it's because, you know, you have a very bipartisan recall effort happening and a lot of people are concerned this guy's a maniac. And we haven't typically had this kind of thing happen here before. I don't think ever. And I don't know, people are responding to it in kind of an interesting way. And in a way that I think does show that we have more in common than we realize. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, everyone wants the state to be a good place to live. Um, It's not going to be a good place to live if we don't govern with compassion, period. So after Dunleavy and Trump are out of office, will you go back to mommy blogging? I hope so. I hope I never have to talk about any of this shit again. (laughs) That would be like a dream to me. You know, I like, I'm like really in the middle of it now, but I also recognize, you know, I'm 42, turning 42. And, um, you know, I recognize like this too shall pass. Like there will be a time, like I can remember thinking no one's ever going to stop talking about Sarah Palin, like never, ever. Like it's going on so long. And like finally, eventually, yeah, people kind of stopped talking about her. Remember, I don't know if you remember that, but that was like, she was just like the Trump of Alaska in terms of how much everyone could not stop talking about her. And after a while, it was just draining to keep hearing it. I do remember, yeah. And so finally, like she stopped, people just stopped. And I think, you know, when these guys are out of office, there will be a sea change, there will be a shift, there will be a correction, um, but there will have been a lot of damage done. And I don't think it, it, that should be understated or dismissed, that government like this is so destructive. 
It's destructive to people's confidence in government, to the actual framework of a democracy. Um, it's destructive to people's lives in ways that are not um, reversible. And so there's going to be wreckage, right, after this is over. It's not going to be like, oh, that sucked. Like, let's all move on and be happy again. It's, yeah. You know, there's going to be a lot of reckoning. Um, and I think, it, you know, it may get worse before it gets better. Who knows? Um, but I do think there'll be a course correction eventually. And when there is, I hope to, like, be able to, like, let this stuff go and not think about it anymore because there won't it won't be happening anymore, hopefully, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there'll always be issues and always be problems. And, you know, I really hope that our democracy can recover from this. Um, I'm not sure it can. Hopefully it can. Um you know, I followed this person on Twitter. I don't know if you know who she is. She's an anthropologist. Um, her name's Sarah Kenzior. Have you ever read anything by her? I don't think so, no. She's like a scholar, PhD, anthropology, social sciences scholar of like fascist regimes. And she basically um, like lined out a lot of the problems like early on with the Trump stuff. And it was sort of scary because like everything she said has been like, scarily like coming to light stuff about the like gaslighting and the propaganda and like you know the the race war stuff and i don't know just like it's awful and i was like oh that's, that's never gonna happen here and like sure enough it's like totally happening and um you know hopefully we live through it okay and it i mean it's already really bad i mean there's already like you know horrible shit like happening at the border um with mm -hmm. migrant families that's like unprecedented level of like human rights abuses in that context and it's scary and depressing and kind of like a stain i think on or is going to be on our history we've had many of them which mm -hmm. is another thing that kind of gives me hope in a way it's like i think about how shitty things are right now and then i'm like what about like the civil war that would have been fucking crazy. Like, imagine, like, no, seriously, like, imagine, like, you're, like, in Maryland, and it's just, like, a bloodbath, and just, like, north and south, like, fighting it out on, like, the Potomac River, just, like, full-on, you know, slaughter. And it's, like, that's, that was intense, I bet, you know? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, like, there have been lots of intense times in American history, and this is one of them, and people respond differently, and... Um, you know, it's pressure testing the democracy in a way that it hasn't been before. Um, but I'm hoping it's, I'm hoping it survives and I'm going to do my part to see that it does. So perfect world scenario, you're back to mommy blogging. What's your first blog post? <laughs> Probably about how my kids hate me for the amount of time I spent blogging through the crisis years. <laughs> Because uh, doing all this definitely takes some time away from them. And I feel a little badly about that because I feel like they're going to grow up being like, mommy was always in her phone. And, um, you know, there's some truth to that. Uh, so I do try to like have like no phone times and, you know, put down the screens and, you know, I don't want to miss my kids' childhoods. And so mm -hmm. I think I probably write about how oh, the last few years I kind of feel like I missed some stuff because... I was like rage tweeting for the entire like <laughs> fourth, fifth grade or whatever. I mean, I it's that's an exaggeration. I'm like, 
I'd like to think I'm a very hands-on engaged parent, but like, yeah, it's a distraction. It's like a distraction I'd rather not have. I'd rather just, like I said, write about more lighthearted things, like how messy their rooms are and like, you know, how like weird and delicious Nutella is, like stuff like that petty shit that I used to write about in the beginning. Well, maybe that's the name of a chapter or the name of a book, Rage Tweeting Through Fifth Grade. Exactly. <laughs> Rage Tweeting Through the Trump Years. Yeah. Well, it's it's been really great talking to you. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Mm, I don't think so. I think we kind of covered it all. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Libby. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And um, when it's all edited up and you got the link, just send it to me. Okay, well, you have a great night. Thanks. You too, Cody. Great talking to you. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 